Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Help you navigate faith in the modern world. And one of the things that we all are coming to be aware of these days is the importance of mental health. And so today on the podcast, we have Michelle Williams, who uh, wrote a book about getting real about depression and how that saved her life. The book is entitled Checking In. Now, uh, for those of you who've been living under a rock for the past few decades, uh, Michelle Williams is a part of a very uh, popular group called Destiny's Child. You might have heard of one of the members of that group who goes by the name Beyonce. But uh, her story is extremely crazy. I don't think we really get into full backstory on the podcast, but basically she was a college student in Illinois. She had a friend who's playing keys for a uh, singer named Monica, who's extremely uh, popular back in the day. And Monica needed a backup vocalist. And so her friend, Michelle's friend, says, hey, come down and do this try in Atlanta. She doesn't have the money to fly to Atlanta. So she gets a uh, companion pass from like a, a, a friend or family member, goes down there, does well in the audition. She becomes a backup vocalist for Monica. A dancer for Monica is the choreographer for the band or for the group Destiny's Child. Destiny's Child is looking for a new band member. So the dancer who worked with Michelle on Monica's stuff uh, tells Destiny's Child, hey, you need to audition this girl. She gets auditioned. And so there is this rapid succession in which she goes from being college student to being in this Grammy-winning you know, band that sells millions and millions of albums. And uh, so it's a, it's a real fascinating story. But if you can get past kind of the, um, like the celebrity angle of it, you know, ultimately it's a story about mental health. And one of the things that we've seen over and over, it doesn't matter what you have or what you experience, that what's going on inside of you doesn't doesn't change because of what's outside of you. It's a story that's told over and over again. We see this time and time again, but there's always this grass is greener assumption that many of us have that if I just got to this level, if I got the promotion, if I got the raise, I got this or that, things would be different. And really, the only thing that's different is where you're standing because what's inside of you is consistent. And so this is a helpful conversation um, about mental health and uh, many other things. I think you're going to really uh, in- enjoy this. And uh, during this conversation, I was thinking about something that uh, our friend Dr. Richard Beck uh, said maybe a couple months ago on the podcast. And uh, in, in his book, Magic Eels, he talks about how uh, for some of us, we've just lost the language of God. And so we just use the language of mental health. And so on the one extreme, you have this perspective where it's just, it's all mental health and you don't talk about God at all, even though mental health is real. Um, And on the other extreme where some of us are coming from is that if you have God, then mental health isn't a real thing at all. And what we find is like you, you can get lost in both of them where you don't understand that when Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that each of those are facets of who you are. And God wants the whole part of you to be healthy. And so God wants your soul to be in tune to who God is. God wants your mind to be healthy. God wants your body. God wants your strength to be invested in the right things. And sometimes we just bifurcate these little areas of our life and say, this is what God wants. And I think the gospel is that God is supposed to be in in all of it. Because God didn't just make you to have a soul. God didn't just make you to have a body. God didn't just make you to have a mind. But like somehow all of those things are connected into who you are. And part of that, I think, is what it means to be created in the divine image. Because God is Father, Son, and Spirit in the same way that we are a mind, we are our spirit, we are our body, we are all of these things. So uh, I just got in a little sermon for some reason because I wasn't planning on doing that. Um, but nevertheless, there's a sermon right there for you that's for free. But now you are here what you to hear what you paid for. Actually, you didn't pay for any of this. It's free. The whole thing's free. But uh, now on the podcast, we have Michelle Williams doing the thing, talking about her new book, which is entitled Checking In. So, check it out. Joining us, Atlanta? Is that where you are today, Michelle? I am. Yes, Yes. sir. So, we have Michelle Williams, the author of the new book, Checking In. How are you today, Michelle? I'm doing well, Luke. How are you? Good. Do you like Atlanta? I do. I do. You know, I've got some family here. You know, I love, I, I have found my pocket of community. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's been working out for me. Good. I lived there when I was in college. 
uh, for summer. I interned at a church, and I thought, oh, yeah, it's a good place. Oh, cool. Yeah, I like it. Atlanta, it's nice. nice. Good for you. Now, um, you have a new book, Checking In, and I'm excited to talk about it, but I, I just need to be real upfront, real honest with you. I feel like I owe you my small part of like helping promote your book because for the past 20 years, I have reiterated a line from one of your songs that that uh, like I feel like I can say it on microphone and, and be proud of it, but I've told many people that I don't think you're ready for this jelly. Oh my god, stop it! I have, and I, you know, I just feel like I want to pay it back. Like, hey, thank you for giving me that line from the song "Bootylicious." And so, let's talk about the book. You got it, man. You got it. Yeah. So let's do that. You. <laughs> I've never said the word bootylicious uh, in a microphone before. I'm so excited that you did. Anyway, I've said, I don't think you're ready for this jelly numerous times, and it just flows right off the lips. So thank you for giving me <laughs> that language to share oh with the world. Oh my gosh, I yeah. love it. Yeah, for sure. Now, you wrote a book that is very personal, very autobiographical, and it's two weeks or so after, two or three weeks after it came out. And I, I imagine a lot of people have vulnerability hangover, but because of the nature of what you've been doing for the past 20 years in the public eye, does it still have that same effect because many people know a lot of your story? I would say, you know, as promoting the book, um, I guess because I, I've been talking about my journey since like 2012, 2013 on the mental health journey. But it's just kind of just being able to share the more in-depth, moments in the book um now some people choose now whether or not you know after this airs you know some people choose to only highlight the stuff that's already out there and it's like no no we got to get people into you know you know reading this book and the dark details and the things that i went through you know yeah you said you've been public about your journey since 2012 it's almost been a decade since then. Do you think the attitudes towards mental health have changed over the past decade? I think so. I think people are paying more attention. And when you talk about mental health awareness, many more people are aware about, you know, those two words, mental health. Like, oh, my gosh. Um, and it's okay to be aware. Um, and it's okay for you to have compassion um, for other people who are who might be struggling, you know, on their journey. Yeah, it definitely seems that way. It seems that uh, maybe five years ago, I said something at the church that that I serve as their pastor about going to counseling. And mm-hmm. five years ago, people were like, "Wow, that's like thanks for sharing that. That's really empowering." Because at least five years ago, people still um, felt like counseling and dealing with mental health was something that had a stigma to it. And it seems that yeah. over the past half day, it's, it's not so much there anymore. Yeah. Um, because I mean, people are discovering like, Oh really? I can still go to counseling and still have a prayer life. Like, absolutely. You know, going to counseling and, you know, does not lessen the Holy spirit in you. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you're like, Jesus, I don't want to talk to you. I just rather talk to my therapist. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. You know, Dr. Anita Phillips, I, I, I say this at least twice a day on interviews. You know, she's an amazing um, trauma therapist, but she's also a, a brilliant minister. And, you know, her word is, you know, prayer is a weapon. Therapy is strategy. Yeah. My father's a psychologist. And so I grew up in a home in which talking about this kind of stuff was just normal. Honestly, oh, it was. Cool. Well, it's not always cool because like when your dad's like giving you therapy at dinner, you're kind of like, hey, just just turn it off. Like, I, I don't need this all the time. But I definitely grew up in a world in which it was just like, that's that's normal. It's, uh, I mean, honestly, it's what pay the, pays the bills for my family. Uh, people taking, you know, um, ownership of their struggles and their journey. And in the book, you make a, an observation, or you, you make this the statement that growing up for you, uh, here's the line, where I came from, church was your therapy. I figured only rich white people got professional help, and that wasn't me. I've got another, fr- uh, a friend who's, uh, you know, probably 15, 20 years older than both of us. And like, that was his assessment as a person of color. He's like, isn't that just something like you white people do? Why do you think that that assumption was so prevalent, uh, at least where you were coming up? I would say in the 2000s, I had, you know, was talking to Tina Knowles Lawson, who is the mother of Beyonce. And she was telling me about, you know, that she goes to counseling or therapy. I was like, what? Black people go to counseling and therapy? Because <laughs> I never heard it talked about 
in my family. And it's so crazy because there are three doctors in my family. My mother is a nurse. My aunt is a nurse. Um, Tons of medical professionals. But I'm like, I never heard y'all talk about counseling or therapy over thanks at Thanksgiving. It was always MRIs and other alphabets. <laughs> um, and so I don't know. I just never, it just wasn't in my circle. Um, but I will say, you know, years later, you know, people, I, my own cousin um, is a therapist now, a licensed clinical social worker. And um, so finally we have a therapist in the family. Um but now so many of my friends, you know, are in therapy, you know, uprooting um, those wounds and identifying trauma and learning how to process grief the right way. Um, not only process grief, but processing loss yep. the right way. And sometimes you don't get that in a setting at church on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. You know, the offering plate is not going to be that much if you talk about <laughs> yeah. mental health. But if you tell somebody you're going to get a miracle of a million dollars, then everybody going to be there every Sunday. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I would start going to that church if they promised okay. that. Because yeah. sadly, we don't have that as one of the things that we offer at my church. But ah. I would love, I would love if someone's giving that out, I'm not going to, I'm not going to turn it down. I'm definitely not going to turn it down. <laughs> You you made the observation that part of what counseling does is helps people grieve in a, in a healthy way, and uh, one of the things that you and I have in common is both of us lost a parent in this past year uh, yeah. during during a weird time to experience grief. For you, how has and if you don't want to talk about that, it's fine. But um, what does healthy grief process look like for you? Well, knowing what those um, stages of grief are, you know, you, you know, the, like the top two or three is the sh- shock, anger, and sadness. Now, I didn't go through the shock and anger with my father because he had been ill for like 15 years, but the last year he was declining. So when I got the phone call, I was not shocked. Now, however, I was sad because I was like, man, I'm going to miss him. You know, and so you go through those stages of the shock, anger. Some people go through the the denial. Then, you know, you got to accept the loss, face the reality of the loss, and then let it go. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean let it go in a rude way, but once you have faced the reality of the loss, meaning, wow, this is really what it's like without my loved one here. Mm-hmm. So how do you face the reality? Yeah. You don't ignore their memory. But try to create new memories in their memory. Like a lot of people say around a a Father's Day or if you lost your mother, Mother's Day could be difficult or their birthday or like their favorite holiday could have been Christmas or something. And a lot of people get tore up around those days. And I refuse to do that. Like for Father's Day, I'm going to listen to some of my dad's favorite songs. I'm going to eat his favorite foods. Hmm. Because those are the things that make me full of joy. I don't want to be boo-hooing and, <laughs> oh, my gosh, it was 12 o'clock he passed. At tw- then at 12 o'clock, I just fall apart. No. My dad is in heaven saying, you better eat donuts today. <laughs> he loved donuts. You better listen to um, some George Clinton and P-Funk. Mm-hmm. You better listen to, you know, he loved um, Bon Jovi. My dad loved all types of music. So I'm going to make that a day full of music. Now, that is how I deal with loss. Because there's just certain things should be celebrated and not just... Um, nothing that makes you spiral into depression. And because I know where my father is, my father is resting, you know, um, he's no longer in pain. You know, he has such a beautiful, peaceful transition that I can't be sad. Now my heart goes out to people who lost a loved one suddenly, tragically, you didn't, you didn't know they were leaving. So I'm, I, I grieving loss in that way definitely takes some time. But if you can, when these hard moments come up like holidays, I'm not saying not 
to not share shed a tear if it comes up. But moving forward, how can you make those hard days become days you can smile about when you know they're about to come? Yeah. You know, a young lady in L.A., we were doing Soul Cycle, and someone, you know, just brought her up to me just to give her some some comfort. And so she lost her sister, you know, tragically. So and around that time of year, she's always depressed. And so after that soul cycle, we went across the way to like Jamba Juice. I said, what was your sister's favorite color? She said purple. So I was like, listen, I don't know what I don't know what smoothies y'all have that are purple, but make it purple. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And um, so she's then she went and bought a shirt that was purple. And every year on my social media, she reaches out to me to thank me because that's how she chooses to remember her sister's birthday. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Now there is a book. I think it's called "The Body Keeps Score," and uh, uh, the body keeps the score, and it's like how your body remembers trauma. So even bad news can be traumatic. So that moment you got the phone call, your body of a loved one dying, or something happening, your body remembers that. You know, mm-hmm. so it's just training the body and the mind on different ways to respond um, to what people might even call a trigger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Someone gave me a piece of advice that's very similar to that about you know creating meals. That uh, when my mom passed away uh, a little over a year ago, uh, someone said, you know, there's a great way to celebrate her by some of the meals uh, that were close mm. to her. And so what we did on Christmas is there was. Um, you know, we had a family, uh, you know, tradition of this certain sweet and sour kind of chicken. And Yum. so I had the whole family come over. We cooked it. Um, honestly, I couldn't find the, the the recipe. So I called up a buddy and like, hey, give me some suggestions on what this might be. And so we kind of piecemealed it together uh, to try to figure out what would be close to it. And then we had the whole family there, my kids, my brother's kids. Uh, my dad was there. And it was a really special time for us. We, we celebrated um, like her honor, like her memory, we honored her. And there's something about the food that I think is really, um, like if the body remembers trauma, I, I think it also remembers joy. Ooh, and one of the on. ways that we yes. do that is through like our taste buds. Come on. Yes. So not, yeah, our, our taste buds, what you smell. My father loved cologne. Mm-hmm. Okay. He bathed himself <laughs> sometimes in cologne. And so you are so right. You get joy. Like now I get joy and I don't mean this in a lustful way, but I get joy when I'm around another nice smelling man. You know why? Cause I always tell them, Oh my gosh, my dad would be high-fiving you or something. My dad would probably be asking, yo, what, what you, what you wearing? Because my father loved cologne. So when you talk about what a, 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 a sensory that brings joy, Oh my gosh, Luke, that's yeah. amazing. I love that. Yeah. Uh, um, and also the, the donut thing on mother's day, I definitely went and got the same donuts that my mom and I had, uh, for the last time, uh, a couple oh. months before. So I, I think I'm picking up what you're putting down. Donuts, yeah. food, let's, C- come, let's you, celebrate it. Okay. Did your mother like flowers? Did what does she like as far as the smell? Like smell? Uh, you know, we, the Was smell wasn't that? like, that wasn't like the thing. Um, like your connection to smell, it's not our connection to sweets, to food. Yeah. Like 100% we're all there to, uh, but, uh. Yeah, smell. I don't know. We didn't. Uh, my mom didn't bathe in in, uh, in cologne like your dad did. <laughs> yeah, she she did like to argue though. Um, she liked to argue, and so uh, maybe I'll do that with my brother on uh, the next just holiday. Just pick a fight. Yeah, yeah. Just we'll just argue. argue about just for fun, and then afterwards, like, hey, that was fun. Did you enjoy it? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> uh, whatever, whatever. So yeah, like these kind of things. Um, like when you start to understand and 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 respect mental health. And the process that we all go through, the totality of who we are, like mm. these things we start to make sense of. Your body remembers joys. It remembers loss. That's um, so good. Yes. One of the things that uh, years ago, I talked to a guy who when he was really early in life, uh, he had like astronomical success. And he made this observation. He goes, we often talk about people going through adversity and having to survive adversity. But no one talks about going through success. And like often you think of like success, oh, that's just a great thing. But especially if you have it early in life, you kind of have like the type of success that's really hard to replicate for like 99.9% of people for the rest of their life, that there is like a struggle to like, hey, I had this 
enormous amount of success early on, and now I need to make sense of, you know, what does life look like when, you know, that's hard to replicate for many of us. Uh, Obviously, your story, you were, in the year 2000, you're going to college. Weren't you studying to, like, some sort of, like, forensic science to be in? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was in um, college up until 1999, so I did two years. um, Criminal justice. Criminal justice. Is that a typical, like, feeder path into, like, being a music superstar? It is not. Okay, okay. I didn't know. Like, again, I'm not a music person. But then you have this, like, six-year run in Destiny's Child from 2000-2005 where, like, no one lives like that is a completely foreign experience to many people. Did you find like there was a struggle of going, wow, all of a sudden you had this unexpected success. You weren't like from, from an early age trying to become like this pop star. It happens. And then you go, wow, like this, like I, I've got to make sense of this kind of success that most people are just completely flabbergasted by. You know what? It's crazy. Cause I, I don't know why, but, um, I didn't necessarily have those thoughts. You know, things were moving so fast and so quick. Um, I almost still don't have those thoughts. Um, I just, the the thoughts I do have, though, is uh, even talking with the girls, like, yo, it's been 21 years. Well, for me, in relationship with Beyonce and Kelly, and it's like 21 years later, still being able to do, podcast interviews still being able to be on you know amazing shows like good morning america like 21 years later Hmm. those that's what i think of like i am i'm truly blessed truly blessed and i don't i don't take it for granted at all Mm -hmm. it's um it amazes me because there are people that are literally in this business here today gone tomorrow Literally, mm-hmm. literally. Um, and I think I'm, you know, just c- continuing to find ways to evolve and, you know, follow what I believe my purpose is and, and just try to try to stick to the assignment, you know? Yeah. One of the things that probably surprises some people t- to read your book is that there's been struggle with insecurities for a substantial period of time in your life. And one of the things that you write about, you say, here's the quote, is that insecurities at that time, that I was just a stepping stone to the next better thing. Now, for for many people, they're like, well, how how could that be? You've obviously had enormous success, but yet that still is in there. And you talked about these false labels that you had accepted over the years, that you're not good enough, unlovable, unworthy, not pretty enough, whatever those might be or where they come from. Uh, The... The ability to like to talk about those insecurities mm. does it some and somehow like give you ownership of things that for many people they're like well I, I can't imagine that would be something you struggle with since you have uh, in, in many ways uh, a life especially that many people would like to have. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of people are like, you know, well, shucks, if I if if those were who my friends are, I wouldn't be depressed. Are you sure sound ungrateful? Well, let's start back to the seventh grade when that's where the depression started. So it's not like, it's not, so, and it it just followed me because I didn't get a proper diagnosis until I was actually in my 30s. Um, So I'd say I did a pretty good job of holding it all together, you know. Um, So I just wanted to start there. I didn't, you know, there's some people are a little insensitive to people that are in the limelight who actually decide to share um, hey, you know, I, I've been dealing with depression or it's something I've overcome. And as far as being able to really share about insecurities is when you, when you take away all the, all of the accolades and things attached to my name, you strip all that away. I'm human. When we strip away what you have, Luke, or what anybody else has, all we have left is our humanity. Mm-hmm. And what's in our humanity comes with insecurities, comes with trauma comes with wounds um flaws you know some of us are just have flaws but we're we might be a little more googleable than others <laughs> but other it's we're the, it's, we're the same we're kind of the we're yeah. kind of when you take all take it all away we're all on the same playing field and you know if if the pandemic didn't teach us that i don't know what will yeah uh, the, there the was no um, yeah there was no amount of money that could rich people passed away from COVID middle class, poor people. You you know what I mean? Like it kind of taught us. We also need each other. Yeah, for sure. 
Mm-hmm. And then, and that no one is immune to any of this. Uh, the day that we're recording this um, is uh, the anniversary of when Anthony Bourdain's life ended in suicide. And uh, one of my friends, who, who's an artist, said uh, he has this beautiful post that uh, he makes the observation, like in, in some ways, for him, like the trajectory of the life that that he kind of like I, um, idealized for himself and kind of like glorified. Like this is like the ideal scenario is what Anthony Bourdain lived. And for him, he's going, wait a minute. All along, I believed if I just got there, then everything would just be better. And for him to see that, the struggle that Anthony Bourdain had, obviously, um, in some ways it dispels the myth that he's been telling himself all along, that if I just got to that spot, then all these insecurities or struggles would evaporate. Mm. And you know what? I'll say this. First of all, learning of Anthony Bourdain's passing gutted me. it was just really. Like, oh Why my is that? gosh! Uh, I watch the show all the time, um, and I was like, "Man, just one! I just want to be on one episode where I'm just like shadowing him. Well, I'm not in the yeah. spotlight. I'm not even being interviewed. I'm just hanging out. Like it's probably because I love food too. <laughs> but I'm just—it's just wanting to hang out." with someone who is doing something that just seems so simple, traveling to countries, getting into people's cultures and their way of life. And to know that this man was, well, to us, I don't know if if it was his close friends knew, but to us to learn of his struggles, Mm -hmm. to know that he felt so hopeless and could not hold on. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that, that I, I remember, I remember where I was when Robin Williams took his, like I, I was filming something and it was like, I was walking into the hair and makeup room and it was like, I was para, I could not move when I heard the news. It's like, I yeah. stood right where I was and could not move. Yeah. But going back to Anthony Bourdain's given, like you said, it's the, his anniversary of his death. Like, you know, hearing that just, I was like, man, I just want people to hold on. Yeah. Hold on. And so the book's titled Checking In, and, and I, I think part of the like encouragement you give us in the book is to, to check in with each other. Like, that's one of the three things you recommend. And to hear these stories, it, it's heartbreaking. For me, like, I, I didn't follow Anthony Bourdain's work uh, while he was alive, unfortunately. Obviously, Robin Williams is someone whose work was, you know, meaningful to me. Uh, the story that kind of connects to me the most was it was two years ago, uh, actually this month, uh, I was, uh, my wife uh, is a neonatal ICU nurse and she works a night shift. And one morning, it's four o'clock in the morning and I have my phone off because I'm sleeping, but she's working. And uh, she comes home and so it's four in the morning, she wakes me up and like there's like the, the backlit light. So she kind of has a silhouette and she's standing in the hallway and she says, Greg committed suicide. And I, mm-hmm. I was asleep. I couldn't make sense of it. It's four in the morning. Why mm-hmm. is she here? Why I can't see her. Yeah, and yeah. she turns the light on, and, I, and I'm like, what did you say? And she goes, Greg, who was my father-in-law's best friend. He was an elder at the church that I serve. His daughter was uh, you know, my sister-in-law's best friend growing up. So just close family friend and you know, leader of our church. And I, I, it did, when she would say the words, I didn't believe her. And so I looked at my phone because I felt like if I just saw what was on my phone, it would tell me what was real, like which speaks to how addicted to my phone I am, I might be. And mm. there was just text message after text from family members. And it was, it, I'll never forget like that. That was the moment for me. I was like, I, I didn't know. And none of us knew, uh, n- none of his friends really knew what he was struggling with. And th- the point you're making in the book about we need to check in because that's one of the lessons I took from this is, you don't know what someone's going through, even if they seem to have a great life and family's good and, you know, career's good. Like, you, you just don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm. And you know what? Um, when I look at, say, your Instagram page, right? And you know how you can see who's following you? Yeah. We both were, are followed by someone who also is not, who's no longer here from death by suicide, dying by suicide. And that is our brother, Jared Wilson. Yeah. You know? Um, oh, yeah. This is heavy. 
It's yeah. so heavy. I mean, in the book I talk about where I was so comfortable with the thoughts of suicide. You know, I had planned my own funeral. I literally wrote it out in my memo pad. This is yeah. what I want. And so my, I just, I know what it's like. That's all I can say. I know where you're hopeless. And that's why I speak so passionately about it. That's why I'm so passionate about, like you said, trying to find joy. Because it does get better when you hold on. And some people, you know, I know what, what it feels like to be tormented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's heavy. You write about it in the book and you say, um, it was like a sea of darkness. Yes, and sir. Here's the quote. And I mean, it was darker than the dark. I was untethered 100 miles mm. out into the middle of the ocean on a moonlit night with no sign of help. And I honestly, like, I think part of like this book is first of all, like, oh, everyone knows this person. She's a celebrity and, uh, you know, her music's been extremely popular. But once you kind of get past like the, like, no, it's like the hook of, the, oh, we know this person. But once you get past that, you, you hear a story that I think many people can relate. You go, I, I, I don't understand like all the, uh, you know, some of the experiences, some of the stories, that's not my life. But I, when you describe this, a dark that was darker than dark, feeling untethered, hundred yeah. miles out in the middle of the ocean, I think some people can go, yeah, I, I've been there. Yeah. And to hear you say, we, we need to mm. check in. Just check in. Like, that's the first step for any of us. That's it. Really the first step. And, you know, and the three pillars that I abide by every day, which gave me the strength and why I'm here today is, you know, making those intentional decisions daily to check in with myself, check in with others, and check in with God. Yeah. That's it. C- you can you flesh those out a little bit? Like, what does it mean for Absolutely. Uh, I'm checking in with myself a minimum three times a day. I'm checking in with myself, how I'm feeling. What is my body feeling? What am I aware of? You know, what conversations am I having? How am I feeling after I have the conversations? And do I need to make any adjustments in those relationships to make sure that I don't feel that way again? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what adulting, that's, that's what comes with adulting. That's, yeah. Is anything, is there anything that's going to, I have a part in the peace that I want. P-E-A-C-E. I have a part in that, right? Mm -hmm. Checking in with others, you know, checking in with those who hold me accountable, checking in with others just to see how they're doing. Yo, how are, how are you really doing? And checking in with God, you know, um, being able to be honest with him, you know, uh, like, God, I'm overwhelmed or. God, I'm so tempted to treat people the way they treat me. It's real honest conversation. Yep. And yeah, God is talk. not at all intimidated by those real conversations. He's like, I got you, girl. He said, I already know you. I, already, I know that's how you're feeling. I'm so, I'm so glad you came to me today. Mm-hmm. You know. And checking in with others, what does that look like? Checking in with others is, like I said, picking up that phone, um, checking in with people, mm-hmm. community. Making sure you have community because I'm a homebody, so it's easy for me to isolate myself. Like, literally, after this recording, you know, my cousin is like, hey, I cooked dinner if you want to come by. And when I tell you I'm so sleepy, I really just want to go to bed. You know? So yeah. sometimes it's intentional. So sometimes it's intentionally saying, I'm going to be with be in community today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let's check in with each other. She's checking in with me. You know, I'm going to go check in on her. Check in with her. Yeah. As someone who... I think I've become more of an introvert the older I get. Is that, that's what it is. I, I was like, I, or have I always been an introvert? I don't, for me, someone connected the dots for me that, I don't know what your experience is like, but someone said, going to be a pastor at uh, like a bigger church, like there's more like relational, like connections and needs that are like part of the work that I'm very grateful to do, but there's still like more re- relational weight that's put on me. And so maybe like part of that is something that many other preachers are like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. There's just a, a migration away from that. And maybe your work is obviously very much in the public eye in a way that I can't yeah. even imagine. No, but this, I feel you on that. Yeah. yeah. But like when I was 20, it's like, hey, let's go hang out with everyone. That's what I want to do for fun. And now it's like, uh, nah, I'm, I'm cool. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm cool. Be like, you, yeah. You, we're going to delegate some other people to yeah. handle this. Um, if it's an emergency, please call me. Of course. You know? Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know but, what I mean? Yeah. But it's, 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 re, it's introverts. We need to be home to recharge so we can get exactly. back out there and serve and serve you 
in a good spirit, a pure spirit, and strength as well. We, I yes, can't, ma'am. I can't serve tired. No. Some people can. I'm like, you know, let me go home. That's where my charger is. <laughs> it, it's like, yeah. you know, the phone has the charger. Sitting on my sofa is my charger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on now. That is, that's gospel truth right there for that's, me. It's it my charger. For sure. And I don't know if you realize this. Sometimes these newer TVs, how if you don't have, if, if it's on, but it's not on a particular network or streaming app, Mm-hmm. I know mine has the thing where pictures just come. Uh-huh. Yo, I've been so dazed <laughs> that I thought I was watching TV, but I was just watching them dirt <laughs> pictures. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Oh, man. Has that happened to you? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, Judge Judy is on. I'm I'm trying to watch Judge <laughs> Judy. Not these floral scapes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too funny. Or these that different so- pictures of Shanghai and <laughs> Moscow, you know. <laughs> Hey, that's real. That's real stuff right there. That's real. So even like for you and me, people who would be more introverted, there is an importance of, of, of checking in. Uh, oh my the, gosh, So the, yes. the sermon I'm preaching this Sunday is about David at a point of his life where he is about to kill someone because the guy's rude to him. And the guy's wife says, hey, you don't want to do this because the thing you're anointed to do, you will be unworthy to do it if you make this foolish decision. Mm. And so he needs this woman to step up and have this prophetic voice in his life. And if he doesn't, like he screws up his whole life. And in the book you talk about like there's certain people um, Mrs. Knowles, is it, am I saying her name right? Miss Knowles, um, uh-huh. Miss Knowles, that like she's she was that for you, and you talk yeah. about times that things kind of went sideways in your life because you were not surrounding yourself with the right people. You didn't have the right people who were checking in on you that could be that prophetic voice to point you in the right direction. Exactly, and even even just the other day, too, I had a friend. See, these are people that hold you accountable. They're like. Yo, the kind of work that you're doing, he said, it's so good that your testimony is setting people free. He said, but I, he, he was like, I just want to make sure that you've got people that are covering you in prayer mm-hmm. too. And so he was saying, make sure you make sure you're in touch with pastor so-and-so and this person and this person. And I appreciated that so much, Yeah, you know, that, um, that person could recognize when we're pouring out to others, especially in this topic of mental health the warfare that could come with it or, or even the, um, you know, the attack on me will depression try to set back in on me and be like, ha ha, I gotcha. You're not so healed after all, you know, look at you, you know, so I can, I can, it's like, I'm hip to what could come. I'm hip to the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. And so the enemy speaks, these like lies to you. You're unworthy. Come on. You're not acceptable. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you, in the book, which is obviously news to me that, they're when, lies, and if you believe yeah. them, they definitely become labels because you wear them. Oh, oh, come on now! Hey, there you go. Like that was good. Like that's like a sermon right there. Lies mm-hmm. become your labels. Ooh. So when, <laughs> so when you joined uh, Destiny's Child, they actually asked you, or I don't know who, but you started going by your middle name instead of your first name. Mm-hmm. Tanitra, is that? How you say it? You said it right, Luke. Oh, my friend. Sh- so worried about that one. Um, <laughs> so the line was because it was. Michelle's more marketable to little girls. And this decision to go along with it, you say, was was made out of fear. You go along with that. Um, I can't yeah, help it. and if I explain, the fear of asking quite more questions. Like, yeah. well, why? I'll, really? But I trusted these folks because they have more expertise, expertise in marketing than me. So mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not going to. All right. There's bigger fish to fry here. And if I'm going to argue about something, at that time I was like, I'm not going to ruin my chance to yeah. be in Destiny's Child because of a name. Honestly, if they would let me be an in sync, they could have called me whatever they wanted. <laughs> I would have, I would have been good with it. Like I, I could have been in there. It could have been me and Justin. But you know what? Um, I, I'm just saying, like I would have changed my name for that. But there is some like, would it be fair to say that there's probably some racial undertones with? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. You know, because trust me, my mother was livid. I <laughs> named you Tanitra. Mm-hmm. Now, 21 years later, I don't even know if that would be a question. Our vice president's name is Kamala. Yeah. The the mayor of Atlanta, her name is Keisha. And Keisha might be considered to be 
a, a, a quote unquote black name, mm-hmm. but it did not keep her from being in an amazing office, you know, in the city of Atlanta. Like I said, our vice president, Kamala, you know, and then, but then when I look at some of my favorites on television, like Sonny Hostin, Sonny is not her first name. Sonny Hostin, she's an attorney and uh, she's the, one of the um, hosts on The View. You know, hmm. her name is, I believe, is Asansera, Asansera. So Sonny, you know, is a derivative of that name. So it's like, when I think of things like that, of Kamala um, or Keisha, I, you know, twi- now people might not have asked me to change it. I don't know. But, you know, 20 years ago when you're trying to appeal to, you know, so many different races and cultures of yeah. people... It's like, you know, what's best? And Michelle seemed to be best. Now, I probably would have asked a question if they wanted me to go by, you know, Linda or something. Like, that's not, that's nowhere in my name. But you're asking me to go by my middle name. So, it's still part of me. So, part of me, that's probably why I didn't ask no questions. Because I was like, well, it's not like y'all just looked in the book and was like, hey, Let's look in these baby names. Let's who <laughs> who she should be today. Yeah, you know, and so I, that's probably why. But you know, it stung a little bit at first. So I I literally write about. I wrote about you know some of those earlier moments that kind of stung a little bit. Yeah, but I was able to say, you know, it it, it works. It works. Yeah. Well, I. You definitely don't come across as like bitter about it, but you do write in the book that like Tanitra became like who you were at home. That's what your family called you. And she was full of life, daring and brave. But Michelle, as you write, was full of fear, would never measure up. And yes, yeah, like I, I, I had a hard time merging Tanitra with Michelle. Like, no, be, be, you're okay. They call you, they, the world knows you as Michelle. You're still Tanitra. Bring yeah. her with you. Mm hmm. Okay, so there's this thing in psychology when they talk about comparison where they, they've done studies that they would poll people and say, you have two options. The first option is you're going to make $80,000 a year. Everyone around you is going to make $70,000 a year. You're going to make eighty. Would you like that for your income? Or the section, second option is you make 90000 a year, but everyone around you makes 100000 a year. Wow. What do you think people pick? More money with everyone around them having more money than them or less money but the people around you having less than you? What do you think? Ooh. So it was you could pick more, but what was the first one? You can have 10000 less a year, but you have more money than all your friends. Ooh. Or you can have more money total, but all your friends, your neighbors, people around you have more than you. People probably the- went with the first one? Exactly. Yeah. Over and over again, the research has shown that they did a similar study with like vacation time. And what they found is like your level of uh, like means and lifestyle is almost always compared to the people around you. And so if you live in a world in which every like if if you live in a world in which Beyonce is the person who's who's at the office next to you or like the seat next to you, um, that's got to like do something to you. And so you had this line in the book where you're insecure that you are a stepping stone to the next better thing. I, I can't imagine what it'd be like where the, the people around you, the people that you know are, are like the most well-known people in the world. And in the book, like you talk about how some people online weren't nice to you, which I hate that I went and Googled all the stuff that you referenced in the book. But then I was like, hey, why do you got to laugh about that? Like who hasn't fallen down at work? Why do you got to be mean to her? But d- does that stuff kind of like have a cumulative effect when – when uh, when you start to feel like the people always want to get to the person that's next to you? Um, well, now that I've been able to talk about it, it's been freeing. Like, it does not bother me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think for me, why it doesn't bother me is because of the amazing, honest, and awesome relationship that I still have with the ladies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was never... I think that was a need that I didn't have growing up that I needed. I That was a need that I didn't have in the group, and it's still not a need hmm. now. Now, had I, now, if that was an unmet need, yeah, I could see uh, a lot of jealousy and envy because of an emotional unmet need. So what do you think made you not have that? What made you to be the kind of person where that wasn't a struggle for you? 
sometimes, like, I know, like, there are certain things, I'll say this, like, I'm confident right now, like, I don't have to be an artist ever again. Really? Yeah, I'm confident, and I'm okay. I don't have to be an artist ever again. Now, if there was a part of me that still desired, I never reached the peak of my solo artist potential. Yeah. But I'm in my purpose. Yeah. I think, you know what I'm saying? I think Destiny's Child is a part of my purpose. But is was it my sole purpose? No. Huh. And it's said- very weird because people are like, shut up. You're, I'm telling you, that was never, hand on Bible, my place in Destiny's Child or in the world musically was never a concern. Mm-hmm. It was not something that I thrived for solo wise. Now, if we got back together as a group, because I believe a, a part of my mission, I love serving. I love being there with people and for people, you know. And um, so it's, it's, I, I don't know. I, it's, I'm probably one in a million that, you know, I don't, I never thrived yeah. off of needing um, what Beyonce has. Yeah, the word you used that was that stood out to me was the word confident. For some, like it would be like content, or like I would be like complete or satisfied. But confident, like you were saying, like it's because you're confident in your purpose, and your purpose isn't connected to what position you're in. But like, why does the word confident be the one that you use right there? Confident, sure. Because when I look at God's track record, you know, He's always just he's always hooked me up like Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. i have i have no desire because god gives me what i need so i don't i don't need what somebody else has i got what i need yeah yeah and it's literally it's literally you know it's literally as simple as that for me that's good yeah, if you're confident in who God is, like if, if you know who God is, then you can know who you are. If you're confident that God has taken care of you in the past, you know that God will take care of you oh, in the future. absolutely. He just doesn't bring you this far and be like, all right, you're on your own. Yeah, that's good. You know, you know sometimes it feels like he's left, uh-huh. you know, but he hasn't. You yeah, know. that's good. That's good. Okay, I've got a couple quick questions. These are very important. They're probably the most important questions you're going to answer Probably the entire month, okay? Hilarious. Okay. Uh, first of all, I'm married to a woman who uh, scrubs floors. She's, like, obsessive yes. about cleaning things. And yes. she, at 2 in the morning, will watch murder shows. Yes! That's my what, girl! What is wrong with her? Why? What happened? Why does that? <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she likes, especially, like, the ones, like, snapped, where a wife, especially, like, if the husband's a pastor. Like, it kind of scares me. Should I be worried is my question. You just make just make sure you you know you are doing everything in your capacity to love her, <laughs> okay. And give her what she needs. Okay, okay good. I'll you work on that. Be, uh, y'all won't be on snapped. Okay, good. We don't want that. Okay, question. Okay. Uh, best peanut butter and jelly sandwiches are at the Four Seasons Hotel. Correct. Yeah, bel- I believe okay. it was the Four Seasons, or like, was it the when I like, was it the Four Seasons or the Swiss Hotel? I don't know. Um, now, we had the guy who started uh, the Ritz-Carlton on the, the podcast Amazing. Once, but here's the thing. Like, he didn't give me, like, a, like a, a free, like, night at the hotel. So, like, forget him. I don't care anymore. Because um, I felt like he should hook me up since he was on the podcast. But I'm not bitter about that. Here's the, here's the real question, though. Favorite peanut butter and jelly sandwich is there. Have you ever tried a triple-decker peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Because that'll I change your life. not. Okay. All right. So, before you write your next book and you're going to, like, talk about how great peanut butter and jelly sandwiches can be... You got to try Triple Decker. Yeah. It'll change your life. You know what? I judge hotels by their room service menu. I don't care if, if it's a five star. I need to know, do you have that? And and I judge them by their children's menu. There needs to be chicken tenders, peanut mm-hmm. butter and jelly sandwich, hot dogs, macaroni and cheese. Yep. <laughs> those need to be on the children's menu. Because if those yeah. are on the children's menu, I'm ordering from the children's menu. Yeah. Yeah, my wife likes the children's menu as well, as do my three daughters. So speaking of children's menu, uh, uh, menus, I have three daughters who, like I said, order from the children's menu. Um, a couple months ago, a gentleman, f- f- 
from Atlanta. I think he lives in Atlanta now. Uh, named Lecrae was on yes. the podcast talking about his new book. Amazing. And I, I missed an important opportunity that I needed as a parent for him to help me with something. And I'm not going to make that mistake again this time. When he was on, my daughter had just asked me what the word ratchet meant. And I said... I, I don't know. Like ratchet just means it's ratchet. Like we all know what ratchet. It just it, it's ratchety. Um, and so I couldn't give a definition for that. So now you're on the podcast. I have a question. Um, my daughters are talking to me about twerking, and I don't know how Uh-oh. to have this conversation with my Uh-oh. daughters. Um, can you like what do I say when they say, Dad? Why do you say don't twerk? And I don't know how to respond to that question. Can you help me out? Just um. <laughs> How, just, just they're not old enough. Um, or see, I'd lie to my daughters and say it'll cause arthritis. Arthritis. Okay, I can do that. It'll cause arthritis. It will um, cause arthritis later okay. on, or sciatica. Sciatica. Okay, you don't want the sciatica. You got to do that foam roller on your hip. You don't want to do that. You don't want to do that, darling. You don't want to do that. Your hip bones and okay. spine are still developing. Arthritis. <laughs> And sciatica. That's a perfect answer. You said that criminal justice was your major at Illinois State, and you have the ability to know if people are lying. Oh, absolutely. Did I lie in this podcast or not? Did you lie on the podcast? Yeah, you said you have the ability to tell people are lying. We've been talking for 47 minutes now. Do you think I lied at all? Yes. Oh, no. No, I didn't lie at all. That hurts. Just playing. Just playing. Oh, no, you okay. were truthful because we didn't do like a, a lie game or nothing. Do you want to do a lie game? Yep. Okay. Um, like, do I say like... Th- uh, but you know what? Truth- it's, I, I, I really should be in the person's presence. Yeah. You sh- okay. How about this next time? You're in Austin, Texas, and uh, you have a book to promote. We'll do this in person, and then we'll do the game at that point. Okay. Or just, I'll just come to Austin, and I don't want to yeah. be like, hey... Just come when you're promoting a book. Okay, well, you can. Come, I'm just saying, like, come to Austin, and uh, you give my daughters a talk about how they don't want to get arthritis and sciatica, <laughs> and then you and my wife can watch those weird murder shows, and then I will ask the two truths and a lie game. Okay, I'm here Deal? for it, bro. Hey, yep. uh, Michelle, the book, thank you for writing this. I think it's going to be really helpful for a lot of people. One of the big things I keep hearing is mm-hmm. when someone shares their story, it lets someone else know that I'm not alone and I'm not the only one who struggles with this. And so I appreciate you being willing uh, to be brave and to share this stuff. So thank you. Man, you got it, Luke. Thank you so much for having me. I wish you and your family just um, nothing but you know God's blessings and provision. Um, and just thank you for who you are um, to so many people by what you pour out. You know, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>